So I don't know about you all, but I really enjoyed this morning's sermon, thinking about all the ways that we can wash each other's feet and to love on one another. But I can tell you there is one way, one application, one takeaway that won't be happening from me, and that is I remember a while ago that a Christian lady who went to a Bible study with me, I loved on this lady, and I still love her, and uh, she asked me, her son was a, let's just call it, he was a drug addict, and he had just gotten a job, and she asked me uh, if I would allow him to recommend me to a salesperson of a roof repair, and that all I had to do was let this, you know, put my name down as a referral, that he got a referral, he would get a small kickback, and then they would check out my roof. So I thought, you know, this is just another Christian thing, just another way to love on a lady and get her son a little bit of money. So I agreed, and he came over to my house, and I had to go through a four-hour grueling session of, of high-pressure salesmen. And I remember him telling me that he was going to give me such an amazing deal on my roof for $15,000 when a Google search said it was only worth four. And he was showing me all of these facts and all of these things about while he was giving me the best deal ever. And eventually I said, you know, I'll let you know. And he said something to me. He said, do you not trust me? And at this point I just bursted out laughing and thought, no, I don't trust you. You are depraved. I don't trust any human being because mankind is depraved. Of course, he also had a conflict of interest. I tell you that story because unlike that salesman who asked the question, do you trust me, and besides just manipulation, had no good reason for him, for us to trust him whatsoever, thanks be to God that we do have someone that we can trust. We do have somebody who has our best interest in hand and somebody that the opposite of a conflict of interest, but someone who laid down his life to provide us the pathway upwards. With that in mind, let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17. 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Hear the word of God. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is in as he is also as he is so also are we in this world so let's look at verse 13 by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit now what's communicating this passage is so important for us to realize is that the father has not only given us, or more specifically, the Son has not only given us things that pertain to the future, namely promises of salvation, but he's also given us something that pertains to now. The spiritual gifts, the spiritual benefits 
of coming to Christ are not merely just future. They are, you can argue, primarily future because salvation is primarily about one day dwelling with God, but he's even given us something now. In fact, if I were to ask you in between services, what is your greatest gift that God has given you? What would you say? What is the greatest thing that God has given you? Some might say forgiveness of sins, which would be a true answer. Some might say a beautiful house, which would be a wrong answer. A beautiful wife, a beautiful family. Those are good things, but those aren't the greatest things, right? The greatest thing God has given us is salvation, true generically, but you can even dial it down, and one uh, may say that uh, you can really argue that the greatest gift that he has given us is his Holy Spirit. This is the greatest thing that God could give you. In fact, if you ask God for a gift today, the greatest thing he could probably give you is more of his Holy Spirit in your life. This is the promise that we read about in the very first sermon preached by Peter in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2.38, Peter, as he's preaching that Pentecost sermon, says this. He says, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We're used to that. But he also goes on to say, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called a gift. You receive two things. If you repent and believe, you will receive the gift of forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise that is of the Holy Spirit belongs to you and to your children and all who are far off, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. So who gets this gift? Everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord. Everybody whom the Lord calls to himself. Those are just two different ways of describing the same thing. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is the same group of people that the Lord calls upon himself. You receive forgiveness of sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully I'm not telling you something that you do not already know. Romans chapter 8 makes it explicit that everybody who is a believer or a confessor receives the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit. So there's two groups of humanity, those in the flesh and those in the Spirit. So who are those in the Spirit? Well, he goes on to say, you are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So you are of the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. You are not of the Spirit if the Spirit of God does not dwell in you. So if you're tempted to say that so-and-so, a such-and-such religion, or your atheist neighbor is walking in the Spirit or anything of the sort, it's not true. People who do not have the Spirit do not walk in the Spirit. They do not belong to the Spirit. And in fact, anyone, the passage goes on to say, anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to Christ. So to belong to Christ is to have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, then you belong to Him. If you do not have the Spirit, you do not belong to Him. Does that make sense? All believers have the Spirit. All believers do not have the Spirit. This is your mark of ownership that Christ has over you. In verse 14 of Romans 8, he goes on to say, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. If you have the Spirit and the Spirit is leading you, then you are a son of God. For we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So everybody who is a believer is in the Spirit. Everyone who belongs to Jesus has the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, then you are a son of God. 
And that spirit leads you into righteousness. It's not a spirit of slavery, but the spirit that you receive is a spirit of adoption. And it's this spirit that confirms with your spirit that you are, in fact, a child of God. So if you're ever tempted to doubt and wonder if you're saved, then the reality is the thing that should give you most comfort is not anything that I can say or anything anyone else can say, but really the Holy Spirit confirming with your spirit that you are a child of God. That you should know, in fact, that you are saved, at least at some point of your walk, you should know the reality of these verses of what it feels like to be indwelt by God and for that spirit, the Holy Spirit, to confirm with your spirit that, in fact, you are a child of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? These are familiar passages to us, a familiar concept that we are, in fact, the temple of God. So we have gone from a temple of Satan to a temple where his spirit dwells within. And this idea of being a temple of God should have a massive effect on our behavior. And we see other passages of the Bible that draw out the implications of what it means for us to be the temple of God. So one thing it means that if you're the temple of God is that you must not contaminate the temple of God. And we see that drawn out in 1 Corinthians. If you're the temple of God and it says that whoever destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, then that means you should not destroy yourself. You should not contaminate yourself. Now, a lot of people, when they think of this concept about destroying yourself, you're thinking primarily about cigarettes. But that was not the context. They're primarily about cigarettes and diets and exercise. Now, you can do that if you want. I actually highly encourage you to do that, but that's really not what this passage is talking about. The passage about defiling the temple is not defiling it with Cheetos, but with sin and that which is evil. And the Bible explicitly tells us that if we defile God's temple, God will destroy us. That's one implication of this idea that we are the temple of God. Another implication is found in Ephesians 4.30, which says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So since we have the Spirit, and we have communion with the Spirit, and He walks and dwells with us, then if we do that which is evil, we grieve God. We grieve his Holy Spirit. Now, the reverse is also true. If we can grieve God, or we can grieve the Holy Spirit, we can also bring the Holy Spirit joy and happiness. If we grieve the Holy Spirit by doing that which is evil, then how do we make the Holy Spirit happy? By doing that which is good. By doing that which is holy. The Spirit is our helper. He enables us to live righteously. He is our friend. He is God's down payment confirming that he will return and complete his purchase. Isn't that wonderful? That you can know that you are saved. You can know that you're going to heaven, not because some pastor told you, not because other people believe you're a Christian. That won't help you at all. Somebody can tell you that you're saved and you go straight to hell. Somebody can believe that you're saved and you'd be self-deceived and everybody else would be deceived. Think about Judas. What, how you can know that you actually have a one-way ticket to heaven is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment. It's God's promise to you, I'm coming back for you. I've given you the Spirit, and I'm coming back to redeem the rest. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's wonderful to me. That I can know... That this body of sin, this body of death, as 
Paul cried out in Romans, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ will. I can know that I am headed to glory because I have the Spirit. The same God who took my heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh will take this body of death and replace it with a resurrection body. This is a wonderful truth. This is the promise that God has given us. The Holy Spirit is fundamental to our Christianity. It gives us comfort. It gives us strength to conquer sin. It is the life and breath of our Christianity. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, to abandon the faith is described as outraging the spirit of grace. That is what an apostate is, is someone who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and, quote, has outraged the spirit of grace. And so what we must do is strive to maintain fellowship with this Holy Spirit. We must strive to walk with the Holy Spirit and not to grieve him by gross sin. Really any sin, but especially gross sin. And when we do, and we inevitably will sin, we all have, right? We all have fallen and stumbled in many ways. When we do sin, we must remember the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that says we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we break fellowship with the Holy Spirit, as we grieve the Spirit, as we lose fellowship with him, we must go back to him through confession of sins. Now, can anyone think of an example, a biblical example, of a Christian, not a false believer, but a Christian, who sinned grievously and then repented, and that's related to his relationship with the Holy Spirit? Can anybody think of that example? Maybe David, when he murdered and committed adultery, and did these, I mean, it doesn't get, pretty much, it doesn't get worse than that, right? Could you imagine somebody saying, I did something bad? you say, well, what did you do? I had a bad week. Well, what happened to your week? Well, I committed adultery. That's horrible. And I murdered her husband. It doesn't get much worse than that, right? I mean, I've never had that counseling session yet. I hope never to have that counseling session. I can't imagine it being much worse than that, but that's what happened. That's what happened to our brother David. Fortunately, we have the record of David's repentance in Psalm 51. And here's David living out that First John 1, 9 principle of confessing our sins and running to Jesus. And here are the words of David in Psalm 51. Verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For my, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Or before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Then he goes on to say in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is what the godly man feels as he sins. And as he sins grossly, you'll notice that the Holy Spirit retreats. I don't know if anyone's ever experienced that. You feel like a son of God, you feel like you have fellowship with God, and then you start to wander, you start to sin, and the Holy Spirit retreats. This is what happens. We can never lose the Holy Spirit, but we can certainly lose fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So what are we to do when we don't feel his presence anymore, when he is not confirming with us that we are his children any longer? We're to do exactly what David did, because that was David's situation. David did not feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, so he begged God not to take is Holy Spirit for me. That's what you should do. Don't take the Holy Spirit from me. Don't abandon me. Don't leave me in my sin. We must go to him and call out to him 
We all stumble in many ways. This sermon, this truth that I'm communicating to you will one day be applicable. Probably already has been, but it one day will be applicable to you. In fact, I think about Peter, and what's really interesting is that Jesus said the highest commendation to Peter and also the worst insult to Peter, if you remember. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And he also said to Peter, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church. But what's really interesting is which one did he say first? Did he say in the beginning of Peter's stubborn days, get behind me, Satan? And then as he grew more mature, he said, now I will build my church upon you. What's the order? The order is the reverse, actually. The first thing that happened was he said, who do people say that I am? Of course, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on to say, Peter, you are, you are the rock, and I will build my church upon you. And then literally within a few minutes, Peter starts, I guess, feeling puffed up and feeling great about himself and thinking now that he can tell Jesus how he's going to run his ministry. And that's when Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. That's what he says. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine about this verse, and he says, he didn't say that to Peter. He was talking to the devil. No. You can look at the passage. It's very clear. He was talking to Peter, telling Peter, get behind me, Satan. And the idea was that Peter was acting like a Satan. He was acting like Satan. He was acting like an adversary, a tempter, and he was rebuking him in this way. So here's a warning. Here's an application for you. Be careful. Your highest moment and I pray that everybody is in that high moment right now. That you are feeling strong in your faith. Be careful. Because at Peter's highest moment was also his greatest fall. And so too can be you. At your highest moment, right around the corner, might be your greatest fall. But praise be to the Lord. That even if you do fall, remember, come back. Be restored. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Call out to him. All right, let's look at verse 14. First John 4, 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. So let's consider the connection between verse 13 and verse 14. And the connection is that both of these verses are two different tests. Verse 13 is the subjective test, and verse 14 is the objective test. Now, the subjective test is, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit an experience in your life that you have shared in? But the objective test is not, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? The objective test is that there's an empty grave. That there really was a man named Jesus. Just like there really was a man named Adam. Just like there really was a man named Moses and Elijah. Adam really did walk in the garden with God. Moses really did split the Red Sea. Elijah really did call down fire from heaven. He was fed by ravens, and he truly did not die and was taken up into heaven. And most importantly, Jesus really is the Son of God. His mother, Mary, really did conceive him as a virgin. Jesus really did do miracles. He really did raise the dead. He really did have disciples. He really did die. He really did rise three days later, and he really did 40 days after that, or 40 days, he ascended on the, into heaven. An angel said, just as he went up, so he will come back. This all really happened. This is not a myth. It's not mythology. It's not a story that makes us simply feel good. But rather, it's an objective reality. It's the most important truth that makes all other truths seem trivial. 
One man said, if Christ did not die and rise, nothing else matters. Just some real truth to that. Nothing else matters. The Bible is not designed primarily to make you feel good and to make you live a more moral life. It's not true. That's liberalism. It's all false. It's all lies. The Bible is explicit about this. Second Peter chapter 1 says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we have made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Very clear. It's amazing to me, despite the clarity of this, that people will go around and saying that the main purpose of Christianity is just to make you a moral person. And it doesn't actually matter if any of these things are actually true because you should just be amoral and they're morally inspiring stories. Kind of like the rabbit and the turtle. Nobody believes that the rabbit and the turtle are real, but they inspire you to see that continuation is better than short bursts and then burning out. Nobody cares that the story is true because the principle is true. That is not the case with Christianity. Christianity is either true or false. There really was a man, Jesus, or there wasn't. He really did rise from the dead, or he didn't. Nothing about Jesus living in your hearts. Right? None of that. Jesus rose from the dead, and he sent his spirit to live in your heart. But it's not just he's inspiring, and he lives in your heart, and that you now imitate him because he's such a good role model. That's baloney. It's not true. It's all false. Let me digress here real quick. Some of you might have heard people talk about this idea of myth and say Christianity is a myth, but then they go, oh, but it's not a false myth. To me, personally, that's my pet peeve. I don't like that. And here's why. Because what they're saying is actually true. If you look up the definition of the word myth, the number one definition is this. A traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining some natural or social phenomenon, and typically involves supernatural beings or events. So it's a traditional story that explains something that usually has supernatural beings or events. So by that definition, Christianity is, quote-unquote, a myth. But the reason I cannot stand people saying that is because, one, the Bible explicitly says we did not follow cleverly devised myths. And number two, definition number two says a widely held but false belief or idea. So when you go around saying that Christianity is a myth and then are confused why people think that you sound like a liberal, should not be confused. People think that you're saying that Christianity is a myth by saying it's false. Now let me show you real quick the connection between these two ideas and how they're actually not really that far apart. The traditional stories of people concerning early histories that explain phenomenons involving supernatural beings are almost all false. Hence why we identify those stories as mythological. Please, do not be unhelpful in this way by confusing people by saying Christianity is a myth. It's not a myth. It's true. It's true. 1 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If Christ has not died, then we of all people are to be most pitied. It is absolutely crucial that Christ really did rise from the dead. And it's amazing, especially as we see more woke Christianity and all this other liberalism coming in. We've seen this before. We see it again. How people will just try to justify anything by appealing to mythology and trying to reduce Christianity into these feel-good stories. But that's not the case. They really did see and testify that Jesus Christ 
was the Son of God, and he is the Savior of the world. You cannot have Jesus as Savior unless he really did come, unless he really is who he says that he was. All right, let's go on to verse 15. Verse 15. First John 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we saw the first part of this already, namely that God abides in us. That is the Holy Spirit abiding in us. Notice the connection between the Holy Spirit and God. How does God abide in us? By his Holy Spirit abiding in us, because the Holy Spirit is God. This is the blessed Trinity, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now notice also, though, and we've seen this, that this Holy Spirit belongs to whoever. Whoever means whoever. doesn't mean some people. doesn't mean most people. It means whoever. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. We've seen that. But I want you to notice that the text doesn't actually say whoever believes. It says whoever confesses. Now, these are very similar terms, but they're not exactly synonymous terms. Confession is something that happens with your lips. Belief is something that happens in your heart. And if you are tempted to question that, just turn over to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, we see this laid out. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, see, you confess with your mouth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You call on the name of the Lord with your lips, with your mouth. Now there's obviously a connection to these realities. You will not call upon God if you do not believe in God. And simply calling on God without believing in God is useless. And so trying to pressure people to say magical words with no heart behind it is utterly useless. But, of course, sometimes people go to the other extreme and make it seem like we shouldn't actually be calling upon the name of the Lord. Yes, you should. You should call upon the name of the Lord. Think about it. If something terrible happens and some horrible event happens, you're probably going to say, Lord, help me with your lips. Isn't that true? Something terrible happens to you in grueling pain. I woke up from my Lord's Day nap. God's one of God's greatest gifts to me. And I had pain. And it was just involuntary. God, help me. Why do I have this pain? Well, if you have pain and sorrow over your sin and the fact that you're going to hell, the most natural thing for you to do is say, God, help me. Save me to call upon his name. And that's why we find passages like this. It's assumed that you will, in fact, do this if you are a true believer. And actually, we have a whole story about this in Luke chapter 18. You remember the tax collector and the sinner and the Pharisee. In Luke chapter 18, verse 13, it says, The tax collector standing far off would not, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Call upon his name. Just do it. If you haven't, do it. If you doubt, do it again. Keep calling upon the name of the Lord until you are sure that he has answered you because you believe in the person you're calling on, not your calling. Does it make any sense? You don't believe in your calling. You believe on the person you're calling on, right? You're calling on his help to save you. Do it believing in him and he will hear you. It's wonderful. If you call upon his name in true faith, he will answer you. 
God will always answer the person who calls upon his name. You don't have to wonder about that, even to the slightest. All you have to wonder about is, am I being sincere? Am I truly calling upon his name? Use words, believe in your heart, and you shall be saved. All right, in a little time we have, let's finish up a few other things. At the end of verse 15, the latter part, notice it says, not only that God abides in him, but that he abides in God. Now, what is that all about? You see the same thing in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us. We know what it means that God abides in us. That means we have his Holy Spirit. We talked about this. But what does it mean that we abide in God? Personally, I'm not as familiar with that concept. I'm much more familiar with God abiding in me, but not so familiar with the concept of us abiding in him. Well, John Gill says this about that concept. He said, God dwells in his people by his spirit and grace, and they dwell in him by the exercise of faith and love upon him. I thought that was kind of beautiful. We dwell in God by putting our faith and our hope and our treasure and our love in him. We live and dwell in him by that's our hope and our faith. I think another possibility of this concept of abiding in God is this is an example of metonymy. And God here represents the kingdom of God. And so we dwell in God, meaning that we dwell in his kingdom and with him. We abide in him. All right, last verse, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, unfortunately, I only have a few minutes here, so I can't really get into detail here. But to me, this is magnificent and wonderful. This is right here, the gospel. What is the gospel? Right there in verse 16. The love that God has for us. The gospel is believing that God has love for us. That God has love for you. That God has love for me. Romans chapter 5 tells us that while we, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So if you are burdened by your sin and you recognize that you are unrighteous and deserve God's wrath, this is exactly the type of person God died for. That Christ died for the ungodly, not the righteous. It says, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is that even when you're ungodly, even when you are a sinner, even when you are disgusting in your own sight, God, through Christ, or Christ, still died for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal Life. Recognize that God is love, that God has love for us, and that we can come to this God. We don't have to be afraid of this God. We don't have to run from this God in shame like Adam and Eve did. They ran from him. We are to run to him knowing that he is trustworthy. And how, can you, how, is, how do you know it's not a trap? How do you know he doesn't want to just harm you? At first off, that's just silly. Why would he want to harm you? He could already harm you at any moment. He doesn't need you to come to him for him to harm you. Number two, the way that you can know that this God is not here to harm you is looking at the cross. The God who sacrificed his son for us is not the God who wants to harm you. It's the God who wants to save you. By this, we recognize that God has love for us. Praise be to the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you that we can see that you are loved. We can see that you do not want to harm us, that you have 
sent your son to die for the sins of the world and that you beckon us to come taste and see that you are good. And Lord, I thank you that so many here have tasted and seen that you are good, that so many here have your Holy Spirit within them, confirming with them that they are, in fact, sons of God. Lord, I thank you that you did not leave us here as orphans, but you gave us a helper. I thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord. I just pray that we all give ourselves more over to him and that you not abandon us, that we do not grieve your spirit, but your spirit would be pleased with our actions and that we'd be constantly be conformed in the image of your son. And Lord, I pray if there be anyone here that does not know you, that they would come to know you. Bow the knee, confess with their mouth, believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and be saved. Praise in Jesus' name.